Good morning. It's so nice to see you all, and I can look out past you and see the mountains and the trees and all their many fabulous colors. I have just been so praising God. Do you, some of you who are choristers know the um, song. I can't remember the composer. I should have looked it up. So the mountains are telling the glory of God, and I think that um, mornings like this, the heavens are telling the glory of God. I said the wrong thing. What is it, Heidi? I think so. So good. And I just, I saw the sunrise this morning because yeah. my dog needed to see the sunrise. And it was lovely. Anyway, let's pray to start our morning. Glorious God who makes all things good, you are wonderful and we are grateful to be in your presence today. Send your spirit to flow through the room, speak through me, um, open ears and hearts here today, and may your word go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, I retitled this talk, Only God. What? Only God saw this coming. <laughs> because I felt, I felt like that every time I was sitting down to study it. David didn't see it coming. Jesse didn't see it coming. Saul certainly didn't see it coming. Samuel thought God would choose differently. But God knew his plan for replacing the king of Israel. Saul had been faithless with God, right? God's displeasure with Saul could not be born in the leader of his people, Israel, God's people. Saul had his agag moment, as Robin described last week, and God was done with him. That was the last in a series of Saul doing what Saul wanted to do, and God was done. Saul had the anointing of the Lord, yet he threw it away in order to have what he wanted. No surprise, Saul went after power and glory. We humans are suckers for power and glory, aren't we? Humility and obedience is what God calls for, but they pale in comparison until you pull those shiny wrappers off, right? Like children at Christmas, so excited about the biggest packages, never mind that everyone knows the good things come in small packages, right? When we see great and glorious shiny packages, like glory and power, alarm bells should sound and cause us to take a closer look. What is the actual cost of that promotion, that prestigious role that you're being offered, that fancy car that says so much about who you are? What is the cost of those things to our soul? If, by the grace of God, we can stay humble and obedient to our God as Daniel did, as Samuel did, then we can have things that look like glory and power happen to us, but we know that we must hold it lightly, right? That the power, the power is a tool for God's glory, or it's corrupt. There is no middle ground. Beware of power and glory for their own sake. So Saul is in the process of losing it. God tells Saul through Samuel in chapter 15 that God has torn the kingdom of Israel away from him. But there's a process ahead that Saul isn't ready for and doesn't see coming. Saul reminds me of an old fable I heard as a kid. The young colt on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem returned to the stable where he met his mother. Mother, the young donkey said excitedly, 
You won't believe what happened to me today. I ate at Jerusalem, and everyone was cheering and clapping for me. Like that young donkey, Saul was misled by the acclaim that came with his role in the kingdom story. I love that example. That's so me. <laughs> the story of the next few chapters is a series of unveilings. First, Samuel learns who God appointed, who's, who God's appointed king is. Then Jesse begins to see that his baby boy is set aside for something special. The process for Saul takes a lot longer, and it's not pretty. But as Saul's arc is entirely downward, David's is on the rise. They're crossing over, right? Um, David receives the Spirit of the Lord in this chapter, but I get ahead of myself. We'll dig into it here. After Saul learns that the kingdom will be torn away from him, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehemite. Not Bethlehemite. Let's pick up at the beginning of the chapter. Okay? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. While Saul is flaming out, God has already chosen his replacement. It's a great thought and one we need to cling to. When a leader of God fails, as they sometimes do, Nothing of God fails. See that distinction? If one person will not do God's will, another will be found. While we tremble, God is at work behind the scenes. Um, after World War II had been won, Winston Churchill was asked what he was doing during the dark days of the Blitz when London was being bombed so constantly by the Nazis. And he says, said, I was in the basement planning the invasion of Europe. <laughs> What was God doing while Saul was self-destructing? He was preparing David to be king. No one knew it but God. Samuel didn't have a clue. Saul certainly didn't know. Jesse didn't know, and David himself had no clue. He was out with the sheep. We may slow things down with our disobedience, but the will and the word of God will go forth. God knows, and his plans are always better than ours. I love that we can rest in that. If we will. And Samuel said, verse 2, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Remember, Saul had been the People's Choice Award winner for king in the king category, right? Everyone wanted him. We don't know at this point how people are feeling about Saul at this here, but clearly Samuel is afraid of making him angry. Now this bit of the story bothered me a little bit when I read it, and I had to do quite a bit of thinking. God tells Samuel to tell a partial truth. It's true that Samuel's going to make a sacrifice in Bethlehem. But it appears that the Lord tells Samuel to make a sacrifice so that he can tell Saul that that's what he's going to Bethlehem for, right? Could Samuel have gone to Bethlehem without going to make a sacrifice? Sure. I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. It reminds me of students when I was teaching who would 
make a doctor's appointment in the morning so that they could spend the rest of the day shopping and have an excused absence, right? That uh, seems like cheating to me. Or those times when I told my kids that I was going to the grocery store when I was actually, well, I was going to the grocery store, but I was also going Christmas shopping, right? People use partial truth to cover a multitude of ill behaviors. Um, but I think here it's the intent that matters. My partial truth to hide going to buy good things for my kids is not the same as the time my one son said, son, son said to his brother, I won't eat any of your Halloween candy while you're still in the house. <laughs> right? That was not good intent in telling the partial truth. Using partial truths can be a nasty business, but God is not doing anything bad here. In fact, he's already informed Saul that their relationship has come to an end. God is just protecting his servant Samuel here. It's the same as a woman escaping an abusive relationship who tells her abuser that she's going to work when she knows that her plan is not to return to that house after work. This is morally right. Saul had proved himself faithless, and Samuel's life would be at risk if he confessed to Saul the, the main reason why he was going to Bethlehem. Middle of verse 4. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So here's a partial truth again, this time to benefit and calm the people of Bethlehem who are afraid. He doesn't say, no, I've come to crown the next king of Israel. Um, and presumably, why, why do you think the Bethlehemites are afraid of him? <laughs> she who taught last week is laughing. Think about what he did to Agag of the Amalekites at the end of our re reading for last week, right? It was not pretty. Um, so he's all, and not only that, but he's also the prophet of God, right? So the walking word of the Lord is nobody to sniff at and ignore. So Samuel uses the same partially true line to settle them all down. He's come to sacrifice to the Lord and sends them to cons consecrate themselves. There's a calming effect to going through the motions of consecration, the bathing and the putting on of clean clothes. They were agitated when Samuel walked in. To their town because not only has he just is he the prophet of the Lord but he's just coming off of a very bloody scene that he was the perpetrator of he stood up to the king and walked away um, these people need to calm down so in consecrating themselves they're bathing themselves ritually right they're putting on clean clothes I think of consecration as similar to when you've been on a long flight how good it feels to take that shower and put on fresh clothing um, settles me down, gets me ready for the next step. Consecration would have the same effect. The leaders, Jesse and his sons, would feel prepped and ready to focus on the important work of the sacrifice. But now things take a turn. While the rest of the town leadership are off preparing themselves for the sacrifice, Samuel, who stayed with Jesse for consecrating his family, begins to consider each of Jesse's sons. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I went and looked for pictures of Jesse. I looked at, I, I went and searched on um, sons of Jesse images. 
And I found this one. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm stealing that. <laughs> anyway, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I kind of feel like I, all I really needed to do was get up today and read that verse and sit down again. It just broke. <laughs> then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. By the way, scholars absolutely have no idea who the he is whether the he who said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, is God or Samuel. We don't know whether Samuel was saying this aloud to Jesse or whether God was saying this internally to Samuel. So, just so you're aware, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. I don't think this is as weird a situation as it sounds like. I mean, when we have guests over for dinner who know me or know Ted but haven't met our kids, I drag my kids out and say, this is our firstborn, Garrett. This is our son, Pierce. And this is Willem. Of course, I have to call Garrett the firstborn because Pierce is now three inches taller than him. <laughs> anyway, so it's pretty normal to introduce your kids to people who are in your home, which Samuel is at this point. We have no indication here that Jesse has any idea of what's going on in Samuel's mind. Obviously, Samuel is singling out this family, but why? We don't know whether Jesse is caught on or not. And we'll talk more about this, but look at this verse 7. The turning point of this story. In fact, pretty much the turning point of all of Samuel. Do not look on appearances. The Lord does not see things the way we see things. People look on the outward appearance, those shiny packages, right? But the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 7 reminds us that man looks on the outside, but God looks in the heart. Saul looked the part. David had the heart. One was rejected, the other selected. One blew his chance, the other became a leader for the ages. In the, end, um, in the end, what others think of you doesn't matter. What God thinks makes all the difference. When God looks at your heart, what does he see? But then I think, didn't God know? When we study David's life in its total perspective, considering the bad with the good, we may fairly ask, but didn't God know the trouble David was going to get into? How could God call a man like that to be king? Didn't God know about all the political maneuvering? Yes. Didn't he know about the marriages of convenience? Yes. Didn't God know about the affair with Bathsheba? Yes. Didn't God know about the murder of Uriah? Yes. Didn't God know how Absalom would turn out? Yes. Didn't God know David was prone to depression and discouragement? Yes. Didn't God know how David's own family would disintegrate? Yes. God knew all those things and a lot more besides that maybe aren't even in the Bible. That's what grace is all about. He knew what David would do, and he called him anyway. All those things are trumped by one prior fact. God chose David to be king, and he was going to stand by his man. David the murderer, David the adulterer, David the bandit, David the poor excuse for a father. How is he a man after God's own heart? 
The answer comes back from David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's God's grace in action in David. And aren't you glad that it was a man like David who wrote Psalm 23? The man who wrote those words had experienced the grace of God. If a guy like David's heart is acceptable to the Lord, then all of us have a shot, right? At God's grace. One reason to study David's life is so that when our children rebel, um, when we squander one opportunity or not after another, when we make the same stupid mistakes over and over again, um, for teenagers when they feel forgotten and lonely, um, and when everyone whose life has been less than perfect reads Psalm 23 and knows David's life, we know that God can be our shepherd too. Generations will come to say that they don't want David's failures, but they do want David's God. That's why he chose an unlikely shepherd to be Israel's greatest king. That's why his name appears in the Bible more than any other person, including Jesus. That's why after 3,000 years, parents still name their kids David. He was a man who thoroughly learned the most basic lesson in God's curriculum. All of life is lived by grace. And that, I think, is the meaning of the phrase, a man after God's own heart. It can't mean sinless perfection or anything close to it, or else David would never have qualified. It can't mean above reproach. It can't mean spotless reputation, because those words don't fit David. To be a man after God's heart means that because you understand that God never gives up on you, you never give up on God. Amen? Amen. That's good stuff. The bottom line on David is not his sin. The bottom line is God's grace. David was God's man. His heart belonged to God, and that's why God used him. King David is an excellent example of Martin Luther's famous quote on sin. I did a lot of reading in Martin Luther last month as the Reformation was happening. And this is my favorite. All of my Lutheran friends love to say, as they're lifting a pint of beer, sin boldly. It's kind of a joke among Lutherans. But this is the whole phrase. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. If you're going to screw up, screw up. But... Don't stay that way. Rejoice in Christ even more boldly. <coughs> it's not that it doesn't matter what you do. It does. And Martin Luther goes on to talk about sanctification after this. The process of sanctification is going on in every believer, bringing us out of our sin and more and more to reflect on Jesus in our lives. But we have grace. We do. And the point here is not go ahead and sin. It's, you're gonna sin. Just make sure you believe and rejoice in Christ even more than you fail, than you sin. Okay, so that's good, even great news, but let's get back to David's story here at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise. I almost put a picture of Chris Hemsworth in here. You know, but, yeah. I was thinking tall, dark, and handsome, and he's a blonde, so I don't know. There you go. Everybody's got their own. 
we won't talk about sin right now. <laughs> then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I'm sorry, I skipped the important line where the Lord says, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, I'm the baby of my family, just like David is. Well, I'm the youngest of five. He's the youngest of seven or eight, depending on which scripture you're reading. Um, everyone knows that the baby is the best kid of all, right? The favorite? What? <laughs> well, that's my perception. <laughs> but obviously, Jesus doesn't hold this, Jesse, excuse me, doesn't hold this opinion. David is out following the sheep around as his brothers and the rest of the household are being consecrated for the coming sacrifice. I figure it must have been the fifth brother who was actually Jesse's favorite. Because I'm the fifth. Get it? It's a reach, that joke, sorry. Well, for whatever reason, Jesse doesn't think of David as worthy of introduction to the prophet of the Lord when he's passing through town. But when, having met the other sons, Samuel inquires, are all your sons here? Jesse sends for little Davy. Now, you can find a lot of estimates about how old David is here, and Josephus, the ancient scholar, says 10, which I think is why people tend to think of him as a child. But most scholars agree that in the timeline it fits better if he's 15 or 16, which is man age at that point in history, right? Young, but a man. And he's a handsome kid. But his dad's kind of out doing servant work which may say something about how much money Jesse's household is, has. I mean, eight boys. I can hardly feed the three I have. Could not be the wealthiest household. Um, in my homework questions, I had one question about how you handle it when you feel that God has you in a holding pattern. And I want you to pay attention to this, um, how David handles this period. It's about 15 years where he is God's anointed, but he's not king. In fact, he's the servant of the king. Mostly a court musician and an aide-de-camp, the armor bearer, right? David doesn't know that he's bound to take Saul's place at this point, but at some point it becomes clear, right? We'll see that as we continue to study. He knows at this point that he is special to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord has fallen on him. My homework question may seem like an unfair question to us because David, from the moment of his anointing, has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. But remember, ladies, because of Pentecost... We are just like David in that. If you have accepted Jesus into your life, then the Spirit of the Lord has fallen on you and is available to you as well. And there is nothing you can't accomplish when the Spirit of the Lord is working in you. When that Spirit has left, though, things begin to fall apart. Now, don't worry. The Spirit of the Lord is not going to leave you. We live in New Testament times. But Saul had rejected God's leadership, and the Spirit of the Lord leaves him. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Wait, that's not, oh, I forgot my anointing slide. I found this coloring page, and it was my favorite of all the pictures I found of the anointing. All right. 
Here's David playing the harp. Here we go. Um, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. <laughs> he even knows where David is. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine. One of the things I read said that a, a laden donkey was actually a measurement. There may not have actually been a donkey involved. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, um, Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. What's Jesse going to say? I'm not going to say no. And wherever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now this is another hard piece for me. If God is all good, why did he send a harmful spirit upon Saul? Doesn't make sense. First, there are two senses in which God may send something. He may send something in the active sense, or he may send something in a passive sense. Actively, God never initiates or performs evil. He is, as James 1 says, the father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Right? Great is our faithfulness. Passively, God may withdraw the hand of his protection and therefore allow evil to come without being the source of the evil itself. God allows the evil to happen at times when he has repeatedly warned his people, as he had in Saul's case. There's a literary term for what's happening here. It's frequently the case in ancient Hebrew that active verbs are used not for the doing of the thing, but for the permission of the thing, which the agent is said to do. It's called metani of the subject, and sometimes it's used for permitted behaviors, where the agent is not doing the thing, but allows the thing to happen. It's also what happens when something is foretold. This is that same uh, tense, metonymy. Um, or when a situation arises which gives occasion for a certain response. So while it says a harmful spirit from the Lord, it's most likely that it's just Saul's bad attitude. His turning God's discipline into taking the kingdom from him which has made him feel that he's being attacked, that God allows to happen. God doesn't say to him, no, Saul, you brought this on yourself. God just lets Saul get madder and madder at God. So David ends up in the household of sulky Saul. <laughs> Look at him up here. <laughs> Poor Saul. Um, he becomes Saul's armor bearer and liar player. David already had a reputation for his valor in protecting the sheep from bears and lions. So while he hadn't yet fought in battle, that's next chapter, he's regarded as a tough guy, a man of war. He becomes the armor bearer, or the major domo, of Saul. There is no closer servant to the king than the armor bearer. This is the guy who helps him get dressed, right? Who's with him all the time, who begins to know his leader's needs before his leader speaks them. That's what an armor bearer would do in ancient times. And Saul loves David, scripture tells us. Does David know what he's been anointed for? <clears throat> Not at this point. Does he know that he's going to replace the king? I don't think we have any reason to think he has an inkling. So we get to be omniscient with God as this chapter ends. We know, as Samuel does, that David is going to be king, and that Saul's on his way out. 
But David doesn't know what we know. And Saul doesn't know what we know. Do you think Saul would love having David at his side, watching his every step and learning how to be king at his side if he knew what God had planned? Probably not. Only God knows what's going to happen. And it's good to be able to leave it there. So we are going to leave it there for this week. Because something big, quite literally, is coming next week. <laughs> <laughs>